check one, two, three, four, and five. Uh, today's interview, Lockie Maisonneuve, a girl raised by wolves. Stand by. Check one, two, three, four, five. It is Jackie Tantillo. Time for another episode of Should Have Listened to My Mother. And uh, this week's guest, um, take heart because it's pretty sensitive, a pretty sensitive topic. My guest, I'm going to give her a call in a second, Lockie Maisonneuve. She's a Jersey girl. I live in Jersey now, but I'm not originally from Jersey, but she's a Jersey girl. She's a certified yoga and meditation guide. She is... um, She's phenomenal. We've never met in person or or spoken, but I've seen her work online, and she's spectacular considering her past. She is a trauma survivor. Her parents preferred alcohol and drugs over her sister and herself. Lockie Maisonneuve is my guest, and A Girl Raised by Wolves is the book that she's recently written. So... That being said, we are going to get her on the line. And you are going to be inspired. Hello? Hi, it's Jackie Tantillo. Hi, how are you? (laughs) Good. In my little intro that I did uh, before I started dialing you, I said, this woman has a past, but boy, you're going to be knocked off your feet because she's got this amazing personality. And I'm really excited to have this little chat with you. So welcome to Should Have Listened to My Mother. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm excited to do this. Thank you. Well, I think you have a, a, a number of important messages to share with people I, I I want to make sure that we get the, the right message out. Some people have passed. Some people live in that past the rest of their life. But for someone who has d- gone above and beyond, I think it's an important message to share. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm happy to share it because I see a lot of, I meet a lot of people who think it's not possible to shed their past. And I'm all about sharing that it's, insanely possible. How do you describe yourself? Um, I describe myself as a trauma survivor. um, And I describe myself as, um, and I say this, it sounds arrogant, maybe, um, but I say it from a place of humility. I describe myself as uh, being as tough as steel and being unbreakable because I know what I've been through and because of the work I do today, I know what it looks like for people who haven't been able to uh, see that in themselves. It's possible to break through. Are you Absolutely. in a place? Are you outside? Where are you? I am you because it was the only place I could call you from. Because with COVID, my house is. Yes, my house. I apologize. Is the sound okay, or what do you need me to do? Well, I can take off the headphones. Yeah, if you can go right on your phone. I could just hear all the kids in the background. 
All right, hold on. I'm actually going to walk across the street to the park where it's a little quieter. Well, as, so long, me- although, as long as you're not leaving your children. <laughs> you're not, I'm not leaving my children. I left my um, We are all moms, or some of us are, a lot of us are moms, so we totally understand. Yeah, I no, I left my house because my uh, 17-year-old daughter is doing remote schooling, and my husband is cleaning out um, closets. Because he decided today would be the good day to do that. <laughs> you got a great guy, as from my from what I've read <laughs> and heard from you. He's a great guy. He's awesome. He just doesn't have great timing on when he's going to use vacuum cleaners in the house and things like that. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that I'm yeah, like timing is everything. That I'm doing this, and so now I'm walking across the street to the park. But we're all okay. good. Okay, we're all good. So again. Uh, this is an, a podcast called Should Have Listened to My Mother. And what I usually ask my guests, are you who you are today because of or in spite of your mother? Mm, that's a good question. Uh, do you want me to answer that now? Sure. Um, I, think, I think it's a little bit of both, right? Because I wouldn't be who I am today if I didn't have to heal from my childhood, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I wouldn't be who I am today if they didn't piss me off enough to make me promise myself that I would not end up like them. So I think it's a it's a um, a little bit of both. And um, it's funny somebody just asked me this recently, this same question, and um, I don't want to come off like I'm angry because I've actually dealt with a lot of the anger, but at the same time, I'm kind of clear on who I am now, the good and the bad, and I'm, I'm able to own it. So in that respect, I, I really wouldn't be who I am if I didn't go through all the stuff that I went through, and it's enabled me to do the work that I do today. Um, so I, I won't say I'm grateful for it, but I'm not as angry as I used to be about it, if that makes sense. It's a blessing um, and a curse. Exactly. It's a blessing inside of a curse, I guess, right? Yeah. And um, I chose to look for the lesson and leave the trauma where it belonged. And that's the kind of stuff that a lot of people need help with. And that's what I love. You're a certified uh, yoga guide. Is that how you refer to yourself? Yes, I'm a trauma-informed yoga guide. Okay. Um, and... <laughs> I teach yoga to um, incarcerated men and gang members, youth at risk, um, people in drug and alcohol addiction recovery, and um, I also teach in a psych ward in a hospital. Um, And I go into communities. I live in the state of New Jersey, and if anybody knows the state of New Jersey, they've probably heard of Newark, New Jersey, which has its own reputation um, for... uh, you know, gangs and crime and things like that. But there's also this other amazing side of Newark that nobody knows because they're all focused on the negative, right? So I go into Newark, New Jersey, which I love that city, and I do the work that I do because the tra- the people I've experienced in that community, have they've all experienced trauma, and they've experienced both sides of it, right? So I work with the people who perpetrated the trauma, and I work with people who who are the victims of the trauma. 
And when people ask me why I would work with someone who inflicted trauma, I would say, well, don't we want the trauma to stop? Don't we want the inflictions to stop? Don't we want the crime to stop? And if we do, then why would I be the one that gets to choose who I work with? Do you mediate the victim and the perpetrator? Do you work with them together in the same room ever, or you just help people individually with their trauma? I work with people. That's actually a great question. And no, I haven't, but now that you've said it, now I want to do that. I think it's a good idea. I don't know, Phil. I'm sitting here going, Jackie, you're my kind of guy, you know? Or gal, I should say. That's okay. Um, I like that because um, the work that I do is um, I I go into jails and I work with people who are in reentry programs getting ready to be released from long-term sentences, um, and we teach them how to uh, sort of take a mindful approach to their reentry, you know, and all of the things that go along with reentry. Um, when I work with the victims, I work with um, women who have experienced abuse, you know, domestic abuse, sexual abuse, trafficking, obviously, that's where I'm from. And, um, but I've never had two in the same room together. So that would be an interesting conversation. And, um, yeah, that would be interesting. Do you ever work with women, incarcerated women? Yeah, I've taught... Um, the irony is, or not irony, but the strange thing is, the when I work with the incarcerated men, which, of course, all programs in the jail right now because of COVID are on hold, but what we were doing was I would work for a period of time with the men, then I would work with women, then I would work with ICE detainees, right? And we would rotate every six to eight weeks. We would change, you know, the group. The, when I worked with the men, they're way more standoffish, understandably. They're more sort of um, uh, resistant in the beginning. But once they find a reason to connect with me, they're in 100%. And I, I, we literally can't get them out of the class, right? With the women, they're far more skittish. They're very nervous. And it, it, and there, it feels almost like there's a competition of who's going to run the room. And I'm not actually sure if that's a good or a bad thing. Like, I can pretty much go with the flow while I'm in the room, but it's a very different dynamic. And then when I work with people who are ICE detainees, um, it, they're terrified because they. some of them are there because they committed a crime. Some of them are there because they're here illegally or they're here illegally and they got swept up in, in, a, in a raid, right? So... Um, that room is sort of a mixed bag, but the women are very, they're very interesting to work with. Um, and they're very open about their stories. Where the men are a lot more um, uh, quiet about why they're incarcerated. Yeah. Women seem to be more open, right? Generally, not to paint with a broad brush. Your book, A Girl Raised by Wolves. Um, the 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 opener, the introduction was done was written by Allison Grant, who's a licensed mm-hmm. clinical social worker, and I thank her again for um, turning me on to you because she's a good friend and she lives right up the street from me. And Isn't her that son, small world? And, yeah, her son and and my when my older son uh, are in the same class together. That's awesome. Yeah, so it's a small Allison world. Allison is a great person. Yeah. She's I saw the tattoo on her arm, and she goes, Lockie was with me when I got that tattoo. 
But <laughs> I was, yeah. <laughs> she wrote uh, the intro on repressed trauma memories. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess we need to explain a little bit. I want people to read your book. But you basically had two parents that were worthless, alcoholics, drug addicts. No, just alcoholics. Just alcoholics. They were, yeah, they were alcoholics. I had relatives who were, I had a relative who was an alcoholic and a drug addict, but both of my parents were strictly, strictly alcohol, um, and they were very neglectful. Um, and uh, when I was around five years old, my father left for parts unknown. We, were, we stayed with our mother, and then when I was around the age of 10, 11 years old, um, my mother sent my sister and I to go and live with our father, who she found out had been in Florida. And that was where the abuse began. Um, she told us we were going there for a summer vacation, you know, when school got out. Um, I found out from my sister when we got on the plane that my mother had given us away, that they were one, we were given one-way tickets. She literally put us on a plane with one-way tickets. And uh, we went to live with my father, and or our father, and it just went from bad to worse. I mean, he, he was a an alcoholic who couldn't hold down a job. He, he was one step from homeless, basically. And um, he soon started uh, selling me into uh, sex trafficking. And the reason that we talk about the um, repressed memories is because around the age of 14, 15-ish, I called my paternal grandmother and said, come and get me. I'm done living here, um, and if you don't come and get me within 72 hours, no one in the family will ever see or hear from me again. So my father's sister and brother drove to Florida, picked me up. My sister had already gone back to New Jersey. Um, my father, they, my, they picked up my father and myself, drove us back to New Jersey, and in the time that I drove back, that I was sitting in the back seat of the car being brought back to New Jersey, um, according to a therapist I worked with in my uh, 40s, I had repressed all of the memories. I had literally gone to work to just shut it all out. And I did such a good job of shutting it out that to this day I have an atrocious memory. Um, And when when I had my daughter, who was my second child, I had a son first and I had a daughter. When I had my daughter, um, I started getting these flashbacks, these visual flashbacks, but they started viscerally. So what I have come to learn is that I was having visceral flashbacks. So I would feel myself getting punched or I would feel myself being restrained. And then I would start to see images, very disturbing images in my head. And um, I, I went to a therapist because I was sure I had postpartum depression. And the, my therapist said, um, no, you have no signs of postpartum depression. Um, and I started seeing her, and I, uh, as it turned out, I was having these flashbacks. And when you have a flashback, we started to uncover what the flashbacks were about. And as we're having these, as I'm having and processing these flashbacks, it's very disturbing because she had to convince me that it was me that I was seeing. Because I kept saying to her, I'm just seeing a little girl get hurt, get raped, get punched get restrained, and I couldn't understand why it was so personal to me. And she kept saying, honey, that's you. 
and I, I couldn't put it together. And then as we kept processing, I began to put it together, and um, I began to piece together what had happened. Um, the way uh, repressed memories work that I learned from Allison, who is a, um, she's a, a therapist, um, what she taught me was that our memories are fragmented. You know, like, you, if you have a wonderful childhood and you have a great memory, then your childhood is, I remember my first birthday, I remember my second birthday, on my third, and it's all in a timeline and you can pinpoint it. When there are fragmented memories, especially if they were repressed, they come back almost as like a, like somebody mixed up a salad and said, go find the tomato in the salad. You know, like, you find a piece of it here and a scattered. piece of it here. Scattered all it's scattered, the thank you, thank you. That's the word I was looking for you find it's scattered and you have to sort of put it back together the best you can. And that was why, um, that was actually one of the reasons that I was so nervous about writing the book was because I didn't want anyone to think I was making it up. And if there's certain questions I can't answer and I can't answer them because I don't have a memory of them. And I write in the book and I share that there was a time that I didn't even believe this story. And working with my therapist and working with my husband, you know, my husband was like, if you are making up these flashbacks and your reaction to them, you're like the best actress on the planet. Meryl Streep has nothing on you. And the, the fear that was associated with it and the levels of anxiety that was associated with it, I, I'm, yeah. Yeah, it was way too real, was, too deep, yeah, was, too authentic. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I can barely breathe. <laughs> it's a, a lot, especially for a little girl to be um, subjected to and, and no one, no full-grown woman, let alone a child, should never have to experience anything like this. And yeah. if you accept an apology from me, because I, I, that's all my heart, yeah. especially that's all, all I can offer, but I also will offer you Thank so you. much praise and admiration for how you've turned your life around, because again, um, not many people would be able to do that. And and that's the important message of your book, A Girl Raised by Wolves. So I want to just go back a little bit. Your mom was an alcoholic. Tell me about your grandmom, Anne, your mom's mom. My mom's mom was very abusive to my mother. And... Um, I, I think there were some mental health issues, to be honest. Um, when my, my mother had three brothers, one of which died when he was five years old. He was, in, he was hit by a car. And it sort of changed the family dynamic. Um, it actually did irreparable damage. And um, from that moment on, her, the grandmother, my mother's mother, her bitterness just seemed to almost... Well, she shared it amongst all of her children, but it seemed to focus on um, my mother. And I'm still very close, thank God, with my uncle, who was one of my mother's surviving brothers. And I've asked him a lot of questions about it, and we talk about it, but you can see the pain. Um, you can see the really bad memories that he has. So and his, his memory of his childhood is the same as your mom's. Your uncle's not an alcoholic. Your mom has since died, which is another whole story. Oh, my gosh, I can't even. 
Oh, where oh. do we get to that part? Yeah. So, so okay. <laughs> so your your grandmother was traumatized. I think in your book you said she abandoned her children. But she couldn't. She couldn't deal with it after that. But mm-hmm. the wrath of her uh, pain was basically taken out on your mom. Yes. And I don't think that you know, being a mom now, I can't tell you how I would react if my child were taken from me in such a horrific way. I, I honestly don't know what I would do. Um, and I don't know that I would survive it. And I'm, I'm pretty strong. I've survived a lot. I don't know that I would survive losing my child. So even though I have a lot of opinions about, you know, what should have been done and how things should have gone, I do have, um, I guess, at least a little bit of sympathy for uh my grandmother's situation as related to that. That said, I think there's a lot of help you can get when you're in deep, deep pain. And I'm literally trying to walk away from all of this noise, and it's following me. (laughs) I apologize. It's not as obvious. It's okay. The conversation's more important. Okay. Um, But my, my maternal grandmother was never you know, the um, epitome of what we think of when we think of a grandmother. She was quite the opposite. And it was like a piece of her heart died when her son did. And again, I don't know that I'd feel differently. So it's it's, it's hard for me to judge or speak unkindly of her Mm -hmm. for that reason. She was very cold. She was not kind. She did nothing to make us ever feel welcome. That's just the truth. So I guess we do with that what we can, right? But and your mom, this is what her whole life became. She was the, the, the nail to her mom's hammer, right? She was constantly wrong, wrong dumb, stupid. Yes. And, and As that, she did that, that to analogy. you, isn't she? And then she did that to you and Ellen, your sister, your mom. Yeah, she, you know, the thing is, with my mom, my mother's mother was an aggressor. She was outwardly just abusive. My mom was more passive-aggressive in that she felt very victimized, so she felt as though that was her justification. She was also so wrapped up in her own story that it just became a really deep level of neglect. And it was neglect like, what do you care? None of this happened to you. Look at all I've been through. It was that sort of a thing. She probably wanted a big hug and someone to love her and tell her because she was only a couple years older than her brother. She was 11 or something when her brother died. Yeah. Yeah. So she never got the maternal love that she wanted. So maybe, you know, she, she missed that and longed for it. Exactly. And the thing is that, and this is where, in answer to your question from earlier, when you said, are you who you are in spite of or because of your mother, when it comes to me being a mother, I have a 21-year-old son and a 17-year-old daughter, and I am the mother I am in spite of my mother, because all of the love that I never got, sure, my kids get. And I never want my children to ever feel 
that loss or that lack of foundation that I really believe you can only get from a loving mother. Um, I'll never be accused of being the mother of the year, uh, but I'm always there for my kids, and my kids know that they're loved, and that's what's important to me. And I think that going back generationally in my family, if the other women in my family who had children and had the opportunity to offer that love, things would have been a lot different for all of us. Um, so to me, that's the missing link, and that's what I have to offer my children. And you, going forward now, your children have a whole new perspective. Well, their, their life is beautiful and set on the right path because of all that you had to go through, unfortunately or fortunately, like we discussed. Exactly. You're giving yeah. them the love that kids should get. I hope, yeah. And that, to me, is what breaks the cycle, is to be able to look at the new generation coming up and saying, this is breaking with me. I'm breaking the cycle. I'm the one who's going to do it, because I know I can. Where did you get that tenacity and that conviction that you know, I'm not staying in this double-wide trailer. I'm not letting this happen to me. Who gave you that gift? Do you know? I think, honestly, I think I gave it to myself because even when I was a really young child, um, I always used to think there's no way I come from these people. And I had a whole story about um, a, a, another family accidentally put me up for adoption and that I was just waiting for them to come and get me. And uh, I, I really believed that. And throughout all of this, throughout my entire childhood, my sort of mantra was, this is not who I am. I am not like these people. And uh, to the point where uh, some of my relatives to this day tell me that I'm a snob, that I'm the stuck-up one. Oh, and I always laugh. Yeah, and I always laugh, like, is it really that I'm stuck up or that I just want something better for myself and my family and you're not happy about that, so that's what you have to rely on? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's sad because they probably don't even know the stepping stones to start to allow that into their life, that light. Yeah, and they're not interested in it, and that's okay, I don't... I don't fault them for it. That's They're happy. It's their choice. Yeah. Just like this was my choice. But, you know, I can tell you this. Like my grandmother always used to say, if you can put your head on the pillow at night and just fall asleep and not lay there wondering or worrying, then you're pretty much living a clean life. You're doing okay. Your and that's sort of what I know. Your grandmother said this to you or your put to No, my... My paternal. Yeah, your dad's uh, parents seemed like they were wonderful people. Oh, they were awesome. And, you know, my grandmother sadly passed away when I was very young, and uh, a young adult, I mean. And, uh, but to this day, I still talk to her, you know? Yeah. <laughs> she, she's with me. Yeah, she's with me, and I really do believe... I don't mean it like I believe in ghosts. I mean, I really believe that her, a part of her is with me. And it's mine. 
You know what I mean? Like that's I something totally, that's mine. I talk to my parents all the time. I talk to anyone else I've, you know, that's in the next plane and moved on. I, I commune with my buddies upstairs. Yeah. Uh, and free energy as far as I'm concerned. That's how I feel about it. And I really do feel like, um, like my husband said to me once, do you really believe that she's talking to you like she's standing next to you? And I said, no, I believe she's inside me. Like, good answer. Yeah, like wherever that inside me is, I don't know and I don't care. I just know that, you know, it makes me feel good to at least think that she's with me. And if she's not, then okay, there'll be some cosmic joke that everybody can get a good laugh out of later on. But for now, it works for me. Even if it's a placebo effect, it works. It has that positive return. So it can't hurt anybody, right? Yeah, so why not? Like, what, you know, who am I hurting by saying that, right? Yeah. And that's sort of, oh, and in answer, I think I went off on a little tangent, but in answer to your question about my feelings of I don't want to be like other people is that I really do try to take the lesson and I watch. I've always been an observer of people, even when I was young, and I would laugh. And I, would, I remember saying, I want that in my life. I don't want that. I want that. I don't want that. You consider yourself the peacemaker in the family? Yes. And I think in becoming the peacemaker, when you're trying to make peace between people who are one trauma victim or survivor talking to another trauma victim or survivor, um, you start to see uh, how much trouble we bring on ourselves. And like the people that I work with in addiction right now who are in recovery from addiction, they deal with a lot of um, justifying their story in order to be right, in order to convince people that they should be excused for, you know, uh, their drug of choice, right? And it's only, it's not until they can see how much it's hurting them that they realize that a lot of it has been the chaos of the addiction showing up in their lives, right? And for my mom, specifically, I think what held her back was this whole story that she was a victim and the whole world was out to get her. And that the whole world was responsible for her um, issues. Like, she didn't want to take accountability for anything. So as much as I struggled with learning how to take accountability for mine, my, you know, life, um, I did see the value of it. And I did see that um, inside of being the peacekeeper, it taught me a lot about uh, that thing, uh, I think it was Victor Frankl who said man creates his own health. Um, I believe it was him that said it. Um, that a lot of my mom's troubles were in between her ears. And I didn't want to live that way. In your book, um, A Girl Raised by Wolves, you often mentioned how uncomfortable it was when family, other family relatives were complaining about your parents. They're critical of your parents. Um, you know, your parents were bad people. So as a child, you kind of concluded that, and this is in your book as well, that 
bad people come from bad people, so that made you a bad person. That's a lot mm-hmm. for a kid to try and figure out. Yeah, that was the messages I received. I mean, when I went to visit my mother, or my mother's mother, um, we always heard about how horrible my father was and what an idiot my mother was to be beat by my father and how he took advantage of her and, you know, therefore she must be bad, right? And most kids live in a world of either you're a good boy or you're a bad boy, right? So if everybody around you is bad, you must be bad. Because conversely, when I went to visit uh, my father's side of the family, everybody would tell me how terrible my mom was. And my uncle would point, not my uncle that I'm close with, my father's uh, brother would say things to my sister and I like, I can see it. You've got that in you. Same as your mother. You're just like your mother. So when people say that to you, you tend to sort start to listen when you're a young child because they're the messages you're getting. So it, it, that's a hard legacy to shake. Oh, and I don't think they, they didn't understand what they are doing. They didn't understand the repercussions of those words, did they? That's a lot for a no. kid to... I mean, they were just being critical of your mom. They didn't think you would take it personally yourself. Right, but when oh you're... Oh, gosh. Yeah, when you're around it all... You know, it's so funny... I taught a class this morning for a bunch of men who were on parole. And one of the men who was on parole was saying that the last time he was on parole, he, he's ashamed. He was admitting this today from a place of he can't believe he did it and he's learning a new way of life now, right? Mm-hmm. But he had gone to a family cookout and he said, I was high and I had a gun strapped to my waist, like in his pocket, I guess, or whatever. He had a gun and it was visible. And he said, I went to this cookout high in front of all my nieces and nephews, and I went into the yard, and I was playing with them. And he said, any one of those children could have grabbed the gun and shot somebody, or God forbid, shot themselves, right? And he said, I will, I would never today go near any of any child with a gun present. And he said, but what I'm angry at myself for is that I made it okay. I made a, a gun okay to those children, to my nieces and nephews. And now, if they end up in jail, it's on me. If they end up getting shot, it's on me to some degree. Right? So he's taking ownership for making something okay or having something. He was normalizing um, carrying a gun and whatever behavior goes along with carrying a gun. Right? He was normalizing that behavior. And that's what I feel like my family did when they said things like, uh, you're going to end up just like your mother if you're not careful. And I can see it in your eyes. You're just like her. Oh, right? gosh. It's and horrible. she was a bad person. Yeah. And the thing is, they may have had very good intentions. Their intentions may have been, I better keep reminding her so that she doesn't end up like that. I don't know what their intentions are, and I can't speak to them because I don't know what they are, right? Mm -hmm. But what I can say is, coming into my own adulthood, I quickly learned, especially when I had children, that I never wanted to speak to my children the way I was spoken to. And I never wanted my children to think that their father was something uh, less than. So 
even today, you know, my daughter will come to me and say, what's up with daddy and blah, blah, blah. And I say, oh, you know, how he is sometimes. Let's just give him a chance rather than, yeah, you're right. He's a, he's a blah, blah, blah. And then say terrible things. Right. I don't want to. That's not productive. Exactly. And I don't want to, um, buy into that conversation or have her buy into the conversation that her father is less than. And, and now in full disclosure, Sometimes I call him a jerk and I think he's a jerk, right? Because I'm a human being. <laughs> Sometimes, like, I don't want to just well, start sounding shame like... shame on you. <laughs> exactly. Like, all, in, in all reality, let's keep my feet on the ground here, that there are times when all of this goes out the window and all I want to do know, is make a mess. I know. We're all human. Exactly. And you yeah. have overcome quite a bit, my dear. <laughs> oh, thank so, you. Whatever the reasoning. And you have surpassed and moved on and learned, and now you are forwarding your knowledge and your grace. And that's the important thing. Oh, thank you. You are and also I... a breast cancer survivor. Your mom was <laughs> murdered. Your lovely mom. And I know deep down inside, she really needed love herself. She was murdered, and they accused you of the murder initially, correct? Well, they, that's a whole other topic. Yeah, it was a soft accusation, meaning I was asked to come in for questioning. And um, I, during the investigation, I'm proud to say that I became sort of somewhat friendly with the detectives. They actually came to my um, book launch. I invited them to my book launch because I wanted them to be a part of it Mm -hmm. because they were a part of my healing. And um, so, yes, there was an investigation. And as I share in the book, um, some of the people in my family, well, it's already in the book. Uh, My sister lied a lot. And she would tell me me one thing and she would tell the detectives another thing. And that ended up with all of us having to get lie detector tests. In the beginning, they didn't know who to expect, who to, who was a suspect. So when they found out my name, they called me. And my very first conversation with them was them saying, we're sorry to tell you, but your mother is uh, deceased and it was at someone else's hand. And can you please come to her home? We have some questions for you. And I said, sure. Just, I have a question for you. And they said, of course. What's your question? I said, what's her address? I haven't spoken to her in years. And they went, oh, okay. Come on down. And then when I got there, I was in the process of breast reconstruction. And when you're in the process of breast reconstruction, your chest is all taped up and you have, um, for me, for the procedure I had, my pectoral muscles, my chest muscles had been altered, meaning they were um, altered to fit the expander that I had in my chest Mm -hmm. to reconstruct my breast. That is a process that takes a few months. So during that process, I could, I literally could not extend my arm out in front of me. And I couldn't hold my arm straight out. So when I drank a cup of coffee, if you imagine somebody holding a cup of coffee, I had to keep my elbow right next to my body and the coffee close to my body so that I could tilt the cup up to my mouth. Uh, as a better, a different example, I couldn't keep my hands at 10 and 2 on a steering wheel. They had to be down at like 5 and 7, if you can mm-hmm. get a visual of that. Yeah, absolutely. Right? right. So you were checked off the suspect list. Well, my mom was stabbed to death, so when they saw that I couldn't lift a coffee cup, they were like, wow, you lucked out. <laughs> and 
See? I'm not laughing. Another gift that you were given. Yeah. They were kind of like, well, you clearly didn't stab the woman to death because you okay. couldn't have. I mean, I literally couldn't lift my arm to do it. And I'm, I'm not saying this to make light of it. I hope people don't think, hear that as me being callous about it. But you have to find humor in it somewhere. somewhere. And You've been dealing with this for a, a long time. And and I and I, I'm sure no one misunderstands. I hope not. I love um, your name, by the way. Plus, you're named after your mom, correct? Your mom was lucky. I am. I'm in. Uh, it used to be the tradition in the family was the first female born into a family was named Lucky. So my older sister's name was supposed to be Lucky. It wasn't. So um, I was told that my mother had me because she had to name me Lucky because her mother wouldn't speak to her until she had a daughter named Lucky. So. Uh, my daughter's name is Lara. It is not Lockie, mm-hmm. and it never will be. That ends with me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's done. Um, and I love Maison Neuve is beautiful. If anyone knows French, Maison, house, the word for house, M-A-I-S-O-N-N is Nancy, E-U-V-E, Lockie, Maison Neuve. <laughs> and we're going to have to come back. We're going to have to do this again. I would love to. And okay. I would, if, if anybody has any questions or they want oh, to yeah. what websites are? What's the best you can, way? You can go on, on Facebook. You can just uh, look up uh, A Girl Raised by Wolves. That's the title of the book. And Or you can go to my website, which is Um Or just Google and type in Lockie, A Girl Raised by Wolves. Yeah, you have a lot me. of great stuff on the Internet. If you Google L-O-C-K-E-Y, Lockie Maisonneuve. And a Thank girl you raised so by much. wolves comes up. This is Jackie Tantillo. Thank you, Lockie. And um, we'll have you back for another episode of Should Have Listened to My Mother. Thank you. I would love it. Thank you so much.